You're listening to the Bible uncut and unfiltered. We believe the Bible doesn't need to be watered down or cleaned up to be understood. Our goal is to provide a healing place to discuss the questions you can't ask and the context you won't learn in church. I'm your host, Colin Connor. Now, on to the episode. Noah's Ark is one of the first stories that anybody hears when they are in church, and especially if you grew up in a church setting where you went to Sunday school as a kid, or even if you just had a Christian in your family, you probably have heard the story of Noah's Ark. When I was born, the nursery in my parents' house was done up in a Noah's Ark wallpaper. Pretty sure we even had a Noah's Ark lamp in there at one point, and no joke, we still to this day have Noah's Ark Christmas ornaments. I remember I had one of those like baby's first Bibles and on the cover was a picture of a very cartoonish Noah on a boat with like four other animals. This is one of the most common stories in the Bible, but do you know it as well as you think you do? This week, we are going to touch on whether the flood was global or regional. We'll get into why there are so many flood mythologies from all around the world and a lot more. Stay tuned. All right, here we are. Season two. I can't believe we made it already. And thank you for listening. We are moving into what we're calling season two here. We decided on a completely infallible and totally not arbitrary basis that we would do seasons based around our series. So we had Genesis one through six as the initial series we wanted to start out with. And again, totally not arbitrary, right? This is from complete authority here, speaking as, as a Bible nerd. I decided that our last series was going to be a part of the first one, just kind of as a tag on there. So we're going with this being the second season, second series we have here in the podcast, Genesis 7 through 11. And really, we could have made Genesis 1 through 11 its own series. Genesis is basically broken up into two parts. You have chapters 1 through chapter 11, and then you have chapters 12 through 50. But there's a lot but obviously, we've done quite a few episodes on this already. I think this is episode 16 that we're getting into here. So what's that, like 13 episodes we did just on the first six chapters of Genesis? So over two episodes per chapter on average there. There was a lot, and I didn't know going in exactly how long we would take that series on. So I wanted to do it in shorter chunks, just have Genesis 1 through 6. It made kind of an awkward breakpoint, I'm not going to lie. I hated ending that series on Genesis 6, because Genesis 6 is the hinge between chapters 1 through 5 and chapter 7 through 11. Chapter 6 ends the first section of the Bible with the stories of Adam to Noah, but then it also begins the story of Noah going to Abraham. So you really kind of can't win stopping at Genesis 6, but it, it was just kind of the pivot point, and it's where we, we left off there. So we're going to be going into this new series. It's going to take us through the end of 2023. We'll be finishing up right around Christmas, and I'm planning on getting at least one Christmas special episode in for y'all there. But we'll see how that goes and what happens then. We've still got a couple of months. We do want to do at least one question and response episode here for this series, one more before the year ends, if at all possible. So as you're listening to these episodes, go ahead and be thinking through any questions that you might have, and you can send those to us on the website. We have a contact us section on the bottom of the homepage. We also have email that you can send to ccon, C-C-O-N-N, at thebibleuncut.com, and you can interact with us on our socials as well. We would love to hear from you. So let's just hop right into this Genesis 7 to 11 series. We left off the last series with Noah. We had gotten all the way up from Adam. Ten generations are listed before the flood. So that gets us to this guy, Noah. And just like our series one through six saw quite a few controversies that we covered in just those few chapters, there's going to be a lot in 7 to 11 as well. So if you haven't figured that out yet listening to the podcast, there is a lot of debate about these Bible passages. There really is no consensus. If you get someone who says, oh, the consensus on this passage is, that usually tells me that they've only researched one side or very little on any other side because there are very few things in Bible study that actually have a consensus. Now, there might be a conservative consensus, a more progressive consensus, you know, something in the middle, but there are always a few different views going on. I want to talk about some of the overarching debates that show up in these chapters of 7 through 11. And there are controversies mainly of scope, as in how big was this flood? 
Did it just cover a certain region of the world, or did it cover the whole world? We want to talk a tiny bit about geology. Fossils and geological record overlap with mythologies of other cultures, and then I want to touch as well on divine violence. So totally not some loaded topics that we have to cover today, but this should be fun. So let's just hop right in and start talking about the scope of the flood. In Genesis 6, God sees the overall wickedness of the world. It is very violent. That is what the Bible pulls out. It's not just like generic wickedness of people being mean, but actually extreme violence of humans against other humans, against animals, against the land, I think is all implied there. And there's also the issue with the sons of God and the offspring, the Nephilim. And we have an entire episode on that, that if you have not listened, I highly recommend you go listen to our whole worldview of Genesis 6 episode, because that will change the way you read the Bible forever. And it will leave you with a lot of questions. But that all fits into where we are here, because God sees one righteous person on the earth. His name was Noah, and he instructs him on how to build this coffin, this giant box. A lot of times we picture the ark as a boat, but it would not have been according to the dimensions given in the Bible. It is basically a very, very, very large box. And he is to take the animals, plants, food there on the ark with him, his three sons, their wives, his wife, and they are supposed to stay there while the flood goes over the earth, kills everything else, and God starts over. There are two main views on exactly how big this flood was. There is a global flood theory, and there is a regional or local flood theory. So let me just start by getting into this global flood theory, because I think this is what most people are going to be familiar with, especially here in America, especially if you had any kind of an evangelical upbringing in church, you probably had this idea that the flood was over the entire globe, that the story expressed in Genesis 6 through about 9 is when the flood ends. That happened over every continent, every square inch of the globe was covered in water. Now, if you didn't grow up in church and hearing these stories, that might sound a little ridiculous or insane to you, but I cannot stress enough how much this idea is embedded in the minds of many Christians when they think of the flood. And I understand why. There is a lot of language in the flood story that makes it sound as if this is over the entirety of the globe, if we are just reading our modern sensibilities into this ancient text. So the average 21st century person looking at the story is going to think that's what it's talking about. For example, right in chapter 7, verses 19 to 23, I'll just read part of this here. The waters prevailed exceedingly over the earth, and all the high hills that were under the entirety of heaven were covered. Fifteen cubits upward, and a cubit is about 18 inches roughly. So we're talking about several feet upward over the tallest mountains the waters prevailed. And the mountains were covered, and all flesh died that moved upon the earth, both fowl, cattle, beast, every creeping thing that creeps on the earth, every human. Everyone in whose nostrils was the breath of life of all that was in the dry land died. And every living substance was destroyed which was on the face of the ground. Both man, cattle, creeping things, fowl of heaven, they were destroyed from the earth. Noah only remained alive, and they that were with him in the ark. So yeah, that sounds pretty total. That sounds like it is over everything. And it continues, chapter 8. When the main rain has subsided, but there are still floodwaters over the world, verse 9 of chapter 8 says, But the dove that Noah sent out found no rest for the sole of its foot. She returned to him into the ark, for the waters were on the face of the whole earth. Then he put forth his hand and took her, pulled her in unto him into the ark. Chapter 9, verse 11, God says, I will establish my covenant with you. Neither will all flesh be cut off any more by the waters of the flood. Neither shall there be any more a flood to destroy the earth. This is where people are coming from, where they're going to say that just based on the face value of what that sounds like to us, it sounds like the Bible is saying the entire world was covered in water. It sounds really comprehensive. And then people will also try to argue from a fossil record where they will say that certain things about fossils that have been found could indicate there was a global flood where the entire world was underwater. For example, sometimes there have been fossils of sea creatures found on top of mountains. Obviously, mountains aren't usually anywhere near the sea, and the sea creatures are definitely not near the tops of mountains, so that is a little odd. There's also things like fossil graveyards, where large amounts of fossils are found. That means that a lot of animals likely died in the same place in the same time, so something catastrophic had to happen there, and they will attribute that to a flood. 
Along the lines of that, there is also the catastrophic geology that they will try to point to. And a lot of times, this is going to be the Grand Canyon. That's kind of just like the go-to for a lot of people in this camp, is they're going to say something like the Grand Canyon had to be carved out by an extremely powerful force in a short amount of time, which is obviously very different than uh, what most scientists would say about it. But this is a very prominent way of viewing the world around us. If you grew up in or lived in for a while, a certain section of evangelical Christianity, particularly in America. And lastly, these people will point to a widespread corroboration that they see of flood mythologies across the world. And this is something we'll get to at the end of the episode, but there are several cultures all throughout history who have had mythologies of large floods. These people would say then that if you are able to find these flood myths from all around the world, that implies that this happened all around the world to impact people enough that there are so many stories about it. Now, all of that being said, there are also a large number of Christians who do not believe that the flood covered the entire world. They would believe in a regional or local flood. So they would respond to these arguments by saying that the cosmic language that is used here, the entire world was covered and water was over the face of the whole earth and all flesh had died, stuff like that, is actually somewhat hyperbolic. And we'll touch on that more in a second, but I just want to throw that out here as their response to that. They would also point out that there is no clear consensus about fossils. Yes, there are some oddities in the fossil record, and everyone has a different explanation for that. But there is no strict consensus where everybody agrees, oh, this fossil came from this event or something like that. When it comes to geology and the Bible, it's a lot like politics. Your beliefs color what you see. You can have two different people, take a Democrat and take a Republican, and show them the exact same news story, and they're going to have completely different ideas of what the takeaway is, what the problem is, what the solution is, and it's kind of like that here with geology and the Bible. People tend to come to geology with their presuppositions already in mind. So if you are a young earth person where you think that the world is only six to 10,000 years old based on dates and ages in the Bible which we talked about that a little bit in our episodes on chapter four and five. I think five especially is where I got into it. So definitely recommend you go back and listen to those because coming from someone who grew up in a young earth position, I went around saying that the earth was 6,000 years old. Uh, in fact, I was one of those people who said it couldn't possibly be as old as 10,000 years because if you add up this stuff in the Bible, you're getting six to 7,000. So if you say 10,000, you're a compromiser even for that. It was bad. So coming from someone who grew up in that, I've had to look at this now as an adult and realize that the Bible's genealogies are not meant to give us a reconstructed timeline of human history. I get into that more in our episodes on chapters four and five. Definitely check those out there. Going back to the geology. So everyone's coming to it with their own presuppositions, their own assumptions. If you think the earth is six to 10,000 years old or, or some other variation of young earth, you're going to see these fossils and it doesn't matter what carbon dating says. It doesn't matter what other paleontologists say. You're, you're going to say this cannot possibly top 10,000 years or, or whatever it may be. So you're going to throw out other evidence that doesn't support your theory. And the same thing the other way around. If you're coming from an idea that these creatures that are found lived long before humans, didn't intermix, you know, we're talking hundreds of millions of years ago, then you're not going to look for an explanation of how this could be something from 4,000 years ago. So really, when it comes to the fossil record, there is no clear consensus. Everyone is coming to it with their own tinted glasses on and applying that filter to what they see. Responding to the third point of a global flood, People would say that there is actually a lack of consistent geological evidence. So you can't necessarily just point to something like the Grand Canyon and say, see, this proves a worldwide flood. Again, no real consensus. There are plenty of people who look at the Grand Canyon and would say that actually a flood could not form something like that. It was over extended periods of time. But regardless, they're going to say you can't just point to one area of the world and say, oh, look, this looks like it proves a flood. Therefore, a flood happened. You have to be able to show consistency across the entire world of geological evidence for this. And there is no widespread layer of geology that would prove any kind of event like this. And in response to the different mythologies from all around the world, people could respond that not all of those stories match up, so you can't actually use them to prove that there was a worldwide flood. 
Not to mention, if there really was a worldwide flood and everybody died, then what would it matter that all these different cultures around the world had flood myths because they would have all come from these same eight people? So it's kind of like self-fulfilling prophecy in a way. It doesn't prove that people in those areas knew of the flood because they would have been wiped out. Everything would have just been starting back with these same eight people. So it's almost a little bit of circular reasoning, and because these stories are not all the exact same, there are just as many, if not actually more, dissimilarities than there are similarities. So you can't really prove the Bible's account just because there were other stories that sounded kind of similar. And I'll get into that more in a little bit here. Some other arguments that come up are about biodiversity. Like, how could you sustain so much biodiversity through a global flood? How would eight people be able to preserve and transport all of these species that wouldn't be indigenous to their region onto the ark? Now, I don't see this as a great argument against a worldwide flood. And here's the reason why. If we're talking about any kind of flood that a deity sends, because that's the idea here in this Bible passage that God sends the flood, that is a miraculous event. So as soon as you step across that line and say that God has gotten involved, there is something unnatural or supernatural going on here, then it really doesn't matter whether or not something is possible. Because if a God is stepping in, the impossible can happen. So I don't really think saying, oh, well, how could all of those animals from all around the world come to that small place? Okay, we're talking about a god flooding the earth because there were half-human, half-divine warrior giants roaming the land. Okay, like, this is crazy to begin with. I think if God wanted to send a few animals to Noah, he could make it happen. That's the least of our concerns for making this story happen. So if you are accepting that God sent this flood, you have to accept that miracles in this story could happen. God could send the animals. To me, that's not a great argument to use. What I think is a better argument is talking about how could certain aspects of this even be possible. Like the amount of water that would be needed for the entire earth to flood. And then on top of that, where did it go? What happened to this water after the flood? It couldn't all have evaporated, and it didn't just all become the ocean, because there's a lot of difference between where the ocean is and where the top of mountains are today. So what happened to all of the water that was up there for that time? That's a big thing for me. It's like, where did the water come from? Where did the water go? How about the logistics of how eight ancient people could have built an ark, not using any form of modern tools? I realize the ancients accomplished some incredible stuff, so I'm not saying they couldn't have built some really impressive things, and I realize they have a hundred years in the biblical story, so I, I guess it's possible. But we have to realize that these were ancient people. They weren't dealing with power tools. It still seems like a really big feat. And that's why I always kind of laughed at the Ark Encounter over in, I think it's uh, Kentucky, that Ken Ham and Answers in Genesis built back around 2016 or so. Because people would say, oh, see, this proves a boat like this could be built. Okay, no one is doubting that a boat that size could be built. What people doubt is that an ancient family of eight people could build a boat that size. So it, it really doesn't prove anything there. So really, these logistical questions are the ones that I think are more interesting to focus on. And there are absolutely answers that people on a worldwide flood side would have. But this just kind of gives you a little bit of a representation of the back and forth you'll get for that position. For the local or regional flood position, these are going to be people who would say that the story as told in the Bible could still fit a localized flood. Now, it still would have been rather large. It would have been over a large section of the Middle East where people would have been at that time, but it hardly would cover the world as we know it today. Now, the reasons that they give for this, there are several. The biggest one deals with how you interpret certain words within the text. Because, see, the Hebrew term that's used for earth in the Bible, and really there's uh, two, so both of the Hebrew terms for earth in the Bible, can be interpreted as land or region, which could suggest a more localized flood event. See, whenever you see the word earth in the Bible, you can't just think of the planet earth like we think of today. Because these were ancient people, they didn't have an understanding of the globe as moderns think of it. And I talk about this a good bit in our The Stuff You Don't Know You Don't Know About chapters 1 through 6. 
the ancient cosmology of the Bible was almost like a snow globe, where you had this idea of land in the center, and usually whichever people group was talking at that time, their land was assumed to be in the center of the world. And then all around that, you had the waters. And this was just a completely flat plane of existence. And over that, there was some sort of a dome that kept back waters in the sky from falling onto the ground. And that makes sense from an ancient mindset because, well, sometimes the sky falls down a little bit where it, it rains. And it's blue up there. It's blue down here at certain points, so it must be water up there that just kind of leaks down when it rains. So that's the ancient understanding of the way the world would have looked. When they said Earth or world, they weren't thinking of a globe. They weren't thinking of a sphere. They weren't thinking of the planet as we think of it today. I really think that a lot of times when you see the word Earth or world in the Bible, it's actually a better idea to sub in the words land or region. I realize this isn't necessarily going to work 100% of the time. But for the times that it does, it can really change the way you understand a Bible story. Because you have to realize that these people were talking about the world as they knew it. When these people were writing down these stories, God did not give them some divine understanding of how the world worked better than everybody else of their time. He didn't magically say to them, oh yeah, there are actually people on this other continent that's North and South America. There are people on that side of the world too. There's a hemisphere over there. He didn't say that. These people didn't know that. The ancients writing these stories, they didn't even know about people on the far reaches of Europe and Asia and Africa. They knew about the Middle Eastern area, extending a little bit into Asia, a little bit into Africa, and a little bit into Europe. And that was it. That was the world to them. They didn't know of anything beyond that. So when they talk about the earth or the world, they are talking about the earth and the world as they know it. And so I think you can already see how that could make a major difference for how you view this story. Because all of those instances that we read earlier of the waters covering over the whole world, if you understand that as the world as they knew it, well, that's a much smaller area. If you understand it as the land or the region was covered and everything that lived and breathed on the land died, well, that's talking about their area. That is still completely consistent with a biblical mindset. You can have complete faith in the biblical text and take a view that this was a regional flood. And even though there is talk of all of the people, all of the animals dying, there's still an answer that people bring up for this, and it's that that is often hyperbole in the Bible. And now it's time for Rants with Colin, the part of the episode where Colin comes out and rants about something. There are some preachers who will go around and saying that all always means all. I don't know if it's in many different circles. I don't know how far it extends. It's definitely in more conservative evangelical circles where preachers will say, when you see all in the Bible, it always means all. I remember several different preachers thinking that they were being clever and not realizing that every other preacher has already done this. And they'd say, you know what? I looked up that word all, and I tried to see what it meant in Greek and Hebrew, and you know what it meant? It meant all. And they would just try to sound cute with it, and I was sitting there going, really, I've already heard this half a dozen times. You're not creative. But the problem with that is all doesn't actually always mean all in the Bible. Let's look at several different instances of what I'm talking about here. Let's just look going off of the New Testament. If we just start in Matthew, you have Matthew 2-3. When Herod the king heard these things, he was troubled and all Jerusalem with him. Did all of Jerusalem know about the birth of this baby. We're talking about a few astrologers in his court, probably late at night. He's not spreading this around Jerusalem. Now, even if a few other people did, does that still mean that every single person in Jerusalem knew about this? Because remember, you can't claim hyperbole here if you're saying that all always means all. All doesn't always mean all because it doesn't here. Surely not every single person in Jerusalem knew about this or was concerned about it. This happens in the next chapter as well. Then went out to him Jerusalem, all Judea, all the region about Jordan, and were baptized of him. Did every single person in all of Judea and the entire region around Jordan come and get baptized by John? No, absolutely not. What about Jesus talking to his disciples in Matthew 10.22? You will be hated of all men for my name's sake. Did every single person they ever ran into hate them because of Jesus? No. 
there were people who accepted it. If every single person hated it, I don't think they would have gotten sent out. What about Matthew 21.10? When he was come to Jerusalem, all the city was moved, saying, Who is this? Really, every single person in all of Jerusalem knew that this one guy was coming into the city? What about Acts 2.47 that says the Christians were praising God and having favor with all men? Well, that doesn't work well with the last one that we looked at because Jesus said that you'd be hated of all people. And this here says that they had favor with all people. Well, which is it? And we could just keep going on and on and on with these examples. I don't want to beat a dead horse here. But I hope you get the idea that just because the Bible says all in a situation does not mean that it means every single person on the globe or every inch of the globe. Now, the reason that this is such an issue with people is because it often gets into salvation discussions, talking about, well, what about things like how Jesus died for the whole world? What about all have sinned? And that's where this becomes such a controversy, because then you're talking about, well, is every single person ever a sinner? And especially it gets into it with a Calvinist Arminian debate of limited atonement versus universal atonement of did Jesus die for everyone or only for the elect or the people who would come to accept him as savior. And that becomes a huge theological debate that we are definitely not getting into today. But I think you can see how if all doesn't mean all every single time, it could affect big doctrines like that. And that's why people get really touchy about this. I want to be respectful here, but it's an absurdly literalistic reading of the text to say all means all every single time it's there. And I suppose this is a little bit of a rant with Colin here, so I don't know if we start the music earlier or right now. But this is a little bit of a rant for me, because if you hear a preacher say that all always means all, they are lying to you about the biblical text. And I want to be kind about it because I don't think they have any ill will. I think they're trying to be pithy and they're trying to get across a point. And a lot of times it's people who want to say that God loves everybody and Jesus died for everybody. And I'm good with that as far as that goes. But the problem that we run into is they make up these statements and then they don't think them through enough to go, is that actually true? Fits for what I'm talking about, that God really does love everybody and Jesus really does love everybody, but does every single time this shows up in the Bible actually mean what I'm saying? And I'm trying not to be overly literalistic here or be rude about it, but we need to expect more out of these spiritual leaders. If your entire job is to teach me the Bible, you should not be spending your time reading John MacArthur or John Piper or Charles Spurgeon or any of the people that the books get passed around in Bible colleges. Those are not the things that you should be reading. You should not be reading the same things that you read in Bible college. You should not be teaching your people the exact same thing every week. You should be reading and studying from people who know more than you do. The average preacher can come up with three points in a poem that give you the outline of what happens in a Bible story, and they can slap some moral onto it and tell a couple of funny stories in the middle. But that doesn't actually mean that you have learned anything about the text. So if the people you are reading are just giving you systematic theology, you need to change what you're reading. I'm not saying that all systematic theology is bad or that systematic theology itself should be ignored. There is a time and a place for it, but that is the classroom. And what we need in church is not a bunch of systematic theology bullet points that are honestly mix and match for just about every single sermon. What we need is to learn the things about the Bible that aren't being taught by other people. I can mix and match your sermon with any other sermon that's happening in a similar church on that given Sunday. Then what's to stop me from going to that other church? You need to be speaking the things that these people are not hearing. And that's what we're trying to do with the podcast is to show you that there is actually a world of people who take these questions seriously and who actually dive into the ancient world of the Bible and bring back stuff that you had no idea was there. You can be someone who went to church for decades, scores of years, and have never heard some of what we've talked about in just 15 or 16 episodes here, because the average preacher is just giving you systematic theology. They are outlining for you the story, and they're not adding anything to the basis of knowledge that is out there.
And that's not what we want to do. I realize I'm being a little harsh on how I'm harping on this. And I have more patience for people who are bivocational in this because there are a lot of bivocational pastors where they are doing their best. They do not have the time to sit down and study for hours on hours on end. So they go with what's approachable for them. And I get that. And you know what? If you are out there and you are serving a church and you are doing your best, I respect you. I do not want to put you down at all. Thank you for what you're doing. But by the same token, there are a lot of people who are getting paid to study the Bible. And they are not actually doing that. They are reading books that are teaching them the exact same thing that they heard for four years in Bible college. For those people, I am offering a call to change what you are studying, change what you are preaching, give the people what they actually want. And that's something other than what they have heard every single Sunday for the last 20, 40, 50 plus years. That's part of what we're trying to do here with this podcast. I love this. I'm a weird person. This is the stuff I do for fun. So I'm hoping that in my being able to study this out, I can put it in a fashion where the people who don't have the time to study this out as much are able to get a glimpse into this world and understand some of this and hopefully then offer more and better to the churches, to the people out there than what they have been getting for the last several decades in the American church. Okay, rant over <laughs> All right, going on to the second point for a local or regional flood that people will bring up is geological evidence. Now, uh, that should sound familiar to you because that's something that the worldwide flood people brought up as well. But for proponents of a local flood, they would argue that regional flood events are actually supported by geological evidence and that different things that worldwide flood proponents might point to all around the world are actually representative of different flood events from those different parts of the world. They'll also point to the practicality. A localized flood would align more closely with the logistical aspects of the biblical story, like the construction of the ark and the preservation of the biodiversity of that region. And again, I do not see that as a huge matter, a great argument, because if you are believing that any part of this was miraculous, then, well, anything could happen. But I want to put it out there because it is something that people will point out. A big argument as well will be about the cultural context and there are some scholars who will suggest that the biblical flood story would have been based on a localized flood event in the Mesopotamia region, which was later then adapted and incorporated into other religious texts, not just the Bible story. So it fits with a lot of those other ancient mythologies that were often about regional floods. Many of those other myths are about floods in specific regions, not necessarily the entire world. But there are arguments that can be raised against a localized flood view. And so these would be the people who take a worldwide flood position. They would answer some of these by talking about that biblical language again, how there is global language in the biblical story. Now, in case you haven't noticed, this is starting to go around in circles already because a lot of times people come to this with either their preconception that the flood was worldwide or that it was local. And they're not looking to change their mind. They're not looking to dialogue. They're just looking to prove their point with whatever evidence they can find. So the arguments for one position are often going to be the arguments for the other position as well. And it's just kind of going to go around in circles here. But that biblical language argument will be brought up again. Same thing with an inadequate scope, where they would say that the Bible's account seems to be talking about these people then dispersing over the entire world, so this needs to be a larger event. Ultimately, though, I think it comes down to the theological implications. There are many Christians who have been told by well-meaning people, but they have been told that if you doubt a worldwide flood, you doubt God, creation, the Bible, and Jesus. If you think I am being facetious or a little too exaggerating here, there is literally a sign at the Ark Encounter with a snake wrapped around it that says, if I can convince you the flood was not real, then I can convince you heaven and hell are not real. Think about that for a second. Think about what that is trying to say. And even think about how it's equating just making anything short of a worldwide flood saying that the flood is not real. It's saying that if you take even a localized flood position, you are saying that the flood is not real. Well, you're only a step away from saying heaven and hell aren't real. You might as well throw away the whole thing. And the average Christian isn't going to want to throw away the whole thing because that's what they base their faith on. So they're going to go, oh, well, I guess I can't go down that road because then I'll just end up throwing it all out. The problem is that is not true. I want to get that across if nothing else in this episode. 
I want to get across to you that good, Bible-believing, God-loving Christians are on both sides of this issue. You can believe in the authority and inspiration of Scripture. You can believe in the life, death, and resurrection and atoning work of Jesus. You can believe in whatever fundamental of Christianity you want to list out there and still believe in a localized rather than a worldwide flood. If somebody takes the position that the flood was a regional event, that does not automatically mean that they doubt the Bible. It does not automatically mean that they are taking everything as symbolic and they're throwing out all the important stuff. But that is what I was told growing up. That is what so many people were told. That is what so many people are told in churches every single week. That if you even just have questions about this, well, duh, it's obvious the Bible says this was over the entire world. And it's just people who have not taken the time to learn the ancient context and learn something as simple as, well, the world meant the world to them at the time. That could change so much if people would just step back and be willing to learn that. But there's a lot of, and I don't mean this in a rude way, I mean it literally, there's a lot of ignorance in churches when it comes to the culture of the Bible, because that is not what is being taught to our preachers. And you're talking to somebody who spent four years in Bible college, or re really five, you know, because I, I got a master's at, at a, I would consider it a Bible college, I guess it was a university, but still, it was focused on getting preachers out. So I have spent five years in Christian college settings, and this was not the stuff that we were taught. We weren't taught much about the culture. We weren't taught much about applying Bible theology. We were taught more about systematic theology. And if that's what the preachers, the pastors, the missionaries, the evangelists are being taught, why would you expect better out of the people? The people are assuming that that's why we're sending out these preachers, pastors, evangelists to these colleges is to learn that stuff because I'm working my mortgage job, my plumbing job, my roofing job, my veterinary job, you know, fill in the blank with whatever it is. I don't have the time to go study all this out. So a lot of times it's the normal people who are actually giving money to help these Bible nerds go to college and learn and what they're getting isn't actually what the people need. It's not actually teaching them enough about the Bible. And so these people come back and they tell them that they should fear science, that they should fear college educations that drive you away from God and the Bible. And it's no wonder that we lose so many people in our churches, because what kind of a deal is that? You can think or you can believe. You can be an intellectual or you can be a Christian. You can have questions or you can be welcome here. What kind of a deal is that? It's horrible. It's awful. It is damaging to a person's psyche to be handed that, to be told, you can't ask questions about this or you're going to be blacklisted within a church. You're going to be looked at funny. You're not going to be asked to teach a Sunday school class. Can you blame these people then when they think that this is the only way you can think and be a Christian? If you can't tell, this gets me pretty heated because I don't think that you should have to turn your brain off at the threshold of the church door. I think that the Bible invites discussion. I think that the Bible welcomes it. I think that there's a diversity of opinions that we can learn from when it comes to the Bible. We're talking about an ancient document that is half of a world away and a couple thousand years away from ours. We can't assume that we have the one right way of viewing this. It is not our culture. There is stuff we are going to miss. So I think that's why things like this podcast are so important is to tell the average person in church, it's okay to have a different opinion. It's okay if you think the flood may actually have been regional. It's okay if you think that God may have worked through evolution. It's okay if you think that millions of years have happened in human history. It's okay if you question X doctrine or wonder about Y teaching in the church. That is okay. We should not be chasing out these people. And I know the average church isn't trying to. They'd say, oh, no, we welcome questions. Well, ask the people in your church. Look at the people who have left. That will tell you whether or not you're actually welcoming questions. You may think you are, but if you cannot sit with people thinking differently than you and allow them to serve alongside of you, you are not actually comfortable with that. The church should be a place of unity, not a place of uniformity. It should be a place where we are centered around Jesus and living out his ethic, not a place where we demand everybody think exactly the same as us. So ultimately, all of these different arguments, I think, really boil down a lot of times to people being afraid of what it would mean to question the established understanding of a doctrine in their circles. 
They do not realize because they have never been told that there is a vast array of good, Bible-believing, God-loving Christians out there in the world who believe a different position. A position that they heard was heresy. A position that they heard meant you actually hated God and were ready to throw out the Bible. You were both feet out the door. That's not true. You can believe the Bible, you can love God, and you can hold two different positions. You can even be unsure of what position you want to take at any given time. That's okay. Life is a journey. It is not something where you have to have everything figured out all at one time. So if your concern about all of this can be boiled down ultimately to, well, if you believe the flood was local, then aren't you just throwing out everything about the Bible? We need to be able to lay those concerns aside and just consider this story over the next several weeks with us, free of any of the stress. Don't think of this as you have to make an opinion at the end of our series. Don't think of this like I'm trying to push you to any one view. Personally, I don't care which side of this that you land on. I don't care what side of any of this you land on. If you are listening to this podcast, then you are taking time out of your day to study and think about what I consider to be one of the most beautiful and life-changing books that has ever been written. That's a win. You don't have to come to the same view that I do. I have good Christian friends who are on a very, very far-left, liberal, progressive side. I have a lot of good Christian friends who are on a very far-right, conservative side. I have a good number of friends who fall somewhere in the middle of all of that mess. And that's okay. I have friends who started out on one side, ended up on the other, on both ends of that spectrum. And a lot who have just shifted around in different areas. And I've been on both ends of that spectrum and shifted around a lot in there. That is okay. You do not have to say, this is the one view that I am always going to hold. I just encourage you, be open to hearing from different perspectives and considering the Bible from a different angle, because even if you don't change your view, it helps you to understand your view better and the views of others as well. We have to take a few minutes here and talk about geology in relation to the flood. Now, I will be completely upfront honest. This is not my wheelhouse, and so that's why this is going to be such a short discussion. I am not a geologist. This is not my area of expertise, and I don't want to try to sound smarter than I am here because then I would just absolutely end up failing at that. I am a Bible nerd through and through, so I will try not to step too much out of my comfort zone. But I will say that there are a ridiculous amount of geologists and paleontologists, people way smarter than me, who have dedicated a ridiculous amount of time and energy to talking about both sides of looking at geological and fossil evidence for both a local and a worldwide flood. So I can link to some of that in the show notes, but that's not specifics that I'm going to talk about because that's just not my area. But I will point out that the Bible doesn't say much of anything about the landscape of what the world looked like before the flood, or how the flood affected that. So whatever area of land that the flood covered, be that the whole world or a region, it surely was drastically changed. Just look at a flood today. It changes the topography of the area that it affects. And so that would have been the same back then, and even more so if the flood was global. So sometimes you'll hear statements like people saying, oh, well, the floodwaters covered Everest and they were this high above Everest because it says the mountains were covered. No, that's meaningless because if the flood truly was global, there is no way of knowing if Everest was actually the tallest mountain back then. If the flood truly covered every square inch of the globe, the topography, the landscape would have been really different than how we know it today. So maybe the tallest mountain was a thousand feet above sea level. Maybe it was 500 feet. Maybe it was 20,000 feet. You know, I have no clue. And there is no way for us to know. It is entirely guesswork. And that's why if you take a worldwide flood position, or honestly, even if you take a more regional one, because it's talking about that area too, you can't be certain about any of the locations in these Bible stories, especially the really, really old ones before Abraham and before Noah, especially the ones before Noah, because the flood would have changed the entire geography. You have people trying to pinpoint the location of Eden based on the rivers mentioned. Well, not only do we not have a couple of those rivers today, but even if you're going off of the Tigris, and even if some people think the Hedekel is the Euphrates, 
that doesn't necessarily mean that they are in the exact same location they were before the flood. It would have changed all of that. So that's really why you have to take any of these discussions with a grain of salt. Whether you're looking at a worldwide or a local flood, it would have really changed the topography. So I, I don't think that you can make any meaningful statements about how high the water would have actually been uh, or anything like that. I'll also point out too that sometimes you'll have people, especially in the worldwide flood side, trying to argue that, well, the firmament held all of the water above and the firmament just broke at the time of the flood and that's what flooded the earth and so, you know, that's why we don't have a firmament above us today. But I mentioned this several times in our Genesis 1-6 through 6 series, the firmament, the Hebrew word is rakia, it's a dome. It was simply the name that God gave to the skies. So according to the ancient mindset, the rakia, the firmament, is actually still there. It wasn't removed at the flood. It's just the skies above us. So it had no effect on the flood. So anyone who tries to use a firmament to explain a greenhouse effect or anything like that, again, I want to be respectful, but that just shows an ignorance of the basic text. It's even right there within chapter one, where the Bible clearly says that the rakia, the firmament, is what God called the skies. So it's not a separate thing that used to be up there. It's just the ancient mindset for how the skies work. And furthermore, honestly, looking to geology to support a position on the extent of the flood is actually relatively new. It's only a couple hundred years old. In the early 1800s, a lady by the name of Ellen G. White co-founded the Seventh-day Adventist Church. And the Seventh-day Adventist Church, it can be a little hard to pin down. They're kind of like the awkward redheaded stepchild at a Baptist potluck, and they probably wouldn't like if I said that. But they're kind of an offshoot of Baptists. I don't believe that Ellen White was Baptist initially, but she was impacted by Baptist teachings. So it is kind of an offshoot in a way that neither one of them really wanted anything to do with the other. But it's tied to Baptist movements from the 1800s. So she started the Seventh-day Adventist Church, and the Seventh-day Adventist Church is both very conservative in certain things and very progressive in others. Like It has always been outspoken on certain progressive political issues. But by the same token, it also is very conservative when it comes to diet, sex, things like that. But it was popular in the early 1800s in America. And this Ellen White believed that she had received visions from God about the flood covering the entire world and changing the shape of the Earth's geography. So one of her followers, a guy by the name of George McCready Price, traveled around America teaching in whatever school or church he could get in that the flood was responsible for fossils that were found all around the world. And he gained the attention of a lot of conservatives in the early 1900s. And he co-founded a group that he called the Deluge Geology Society. Now, deluge is a word you'll see pop up sometimes in these discussions. It basically just means flood. So he had the Deluge Geology Society. And it was kind of a shady organization. Like, I'm not going to lie. It tried to hide its work from the greater scientific community because they thought that the average scientist would be opposed to their conclusions. Which, if you kind of have to hide your work from the established authorities in an area because they're going to think you're crazy... That's usually not a great sign that you're on the right track. <laughs> Go figure, this Deluge Geology Society was discredited after some of their findings were proved to be fakes, but they still had enough reach to gain the attention of people outside of the Seventh-day Adventist circles. Most notably, a Baptist engineer by the name of Henry Morris. Now, this is a case of if you know, you know, because some of you are probably going crazy at the mention of that name, others are probably going, who dat? Well, Morris wrote extensively about his young Earth creationist views and worldwide flood views, and he eventually made flood geology a prominent view among Christians after the publishing of his 1961 book, The Genesis Flood. That was major in the evangelical world, because now you have people interested in this stuff as we're starting to learn more about these different digs and archaeological sites across the world. We're finding more fossils, we're finding more sites from Bible times. People are getting curious about this. And so Morris is attributing all of this fossil record geological stuff to a worldwide flood. In 1963, Henry Morris helped a guy named Walter Lamertz form the Creation Research Advisory Committee and that would later become known as the Creation Research Society. In 1976, Carl Weiland formed the Creation Science Association. There's a real low bar for the naming of these groups. All you have to do is throw creation in there and probably science or research and you're good to go. 
So if you're confusing which society and group is which, don't worry, so am I. 76. Carl Weiland forms this Creation Science Association for the purpose of being basically an Australian copy of the Creation Research Society that Morris formed. He was making an Australian wing of Morris's Creation Research Society. Now, some of you may know where I'm going since I said Australia. If you don't, just hold on to your horses here. Because four years later, Carl Weiland combined his association with another up-and-coming Australian creation science group called the Creation Science Educational Media Services. What a name. Together, they formed the Creation Science Foundation. That Creation Science Educational Media Services was led by none other than Ken Ham, who would later rename the combined group Answers in Genesis. Now, amusingly, Ham and Weiland would eventually split again in the mid-2000s, and then by the mid-2010s, Ham had enough of a following here in America to partner with several conservative Bible colleges and to build a replica ark in Kentucky. So that gets us up to current day, and it just gives you a little bit of a history helping you to understand that this is a very modern thing, trying to prove a worldwide flood based on geology and paleontology. And it has a very interesting history. Okay, let's talk about some of these ancient flood myths. Now, when I use the word myth, I want to clarify that a myth is not automatically something that is untrue. A myth is simply a story explaining how the world works. This is where you get C.S. Lewis famously saying that the Bible was a true myth or the story of Jesus the truest myth ever told, or there's different varieties of it that you can find online. But basically, he was saying that this is the greatest story ever told. So when I use the word myth, I'm not automatically saying something fantastical. I'm just saying that this is a story explaining how the world worked. Now, there are all kinds of flood mythologies from all around the world. If you thought that the Bible was the only story of the world having a flood, no, <laughs> not at all. And in the last couple hundred years here, as archaeology has really expanded, we've been able to find dozens upon dozens of ancient flood stories from nearly every corner of the world. The most popular of them is called the Epic of Gilgamesh. And I've referenced this in our previous series because it kind of ties into the Bible's creation account as well. But what most people know the Epic of Gilgamesh for is the second half. It's divided up into two halves. The first half is kind of like the creation story, and it deals with the guy named Gilgamesh. He was a king of Uruk, and he was being hunted down by this crazy animal-like man named Enkidu. And Enkidu was formed by the gods. I think that's what we talked about in the previous series. But despite this conflict, eventually Enkidu and Gilgamesh form a friendship. And when Enkidu is killed by the gods later on, Gilgamesh seeks out eternal life from an immortal human named Utnapishtim. And Utnapishtim had previously survived a great flood thanks to some quick thinking by a crafty god named Enki. Enki had instructed Utnapishtim on how to build a boat that would protect him and his family from the wrath of the other gods. And the story continues beyond there into the second half, but that's the main comparison for our purposes. So you can see some comparisons there with a boat needing to be built, the gods sending a flood, and this one person surviving. And I do want to point out, it is not Gilgamesh who survived the flood. I think a lot of people think that. I know I did when I first heard about it, just because it's called the Epic of Gilgamesh. But Gilgamesh is the guy trying to find eternal life, and so he goes to the flood hero, the one who was granted eternal life, and that is Utnapishtim. So in the Epic of Gilgamesh, Utnapishtim is the name of the Noah-like figure. The second most commonly cited ancient flood myth is very similar. In fact, they're probably connected very closely. It's called the Atrahasis Epic. It is roughly 3,700 years old, so we're talking about 1,700 years before Christ. The Epic of Gilgamesh one was about 3,800 years, so they're both in the, you know, somewhere around 3,500-year-old range. So older than the Bible accounts. And the Epic of Gilgamesh is Mesopotamian. Atrahasis is an Akkadian story. In that story, the god Enlil, I love these similar names, right? We've got Enkidu, Enki, Enlil. But Enlil wants to wipe out humanity, but Enki shows up in this one as well, and he warns a human named Atrahasis, tells him to build a boat. You get the idea from there. We've got a couple honorable mentions to go through. 
The Greek Deucalion is one of several Greek flood myths, and in it, the Titan Prometheus, and the Titans were basically like gods, Prometheus instructs his son, named Deucalion, to build a box to survive a flood. The box lands on a mountain at the end, so again, a lot of similarities there. Hinduism has tales of 14 kings of the world that were called Manu, and the god Vishnu warned the seventh Manu of a coming flood by instructing him to build a boat. There's also overlap in Buddhism and Jainism. I would recommend, check out, uh, I know this sounds basic, but check out the Wikipedia article on this. Wiki has well over 50 ancient flood myths documented. I put the link in the show notes, but it's really interesting reading through what is known on some of these stories and comparing and contrasting with the biblical narrative. Now, I will say, a lot of these flood mythologies from around the world, we don't have complete versions of them. Details are often sparse, and you also have to consider Christian influence. For example, a lot of times, creation science groups like Answers in Genesis like to cite the Hawaiian flood story because its hero's name is Nu'u, and you can hear some similarity between Nu'u and Noah. But it's hard to track down any record of the story before missionaries arrived on the island. And this happens all across the world, where yes, we have these flood mythologies, but they were gathered by Christian missionaries going to these places. So we don't know how much was the actual way the story went before the missionaries got there. We don't know how much they read into it and said, oh, this sounds like the event I know, so I'm just going to interpret it that way. And a lot of times it was these Christian missionaries who were teaching written language and writing these stories down. So we have to be careful trying to look at these stories and saying, oh, this proves the biblical account. But it doesn't for several reasons. One being that we don't know oftentimes how much these stories were influenced by the Christian missionaries who wrote them down and how much they were actually like that before the missionaries were there. We have to take that into consideration. We also have to realize that some of these stories are older than the Bible. So, if anything, the Bible was drawing on those. Now, I realize when you're talking about that, you can also counter that maybe there really was some sort of a flood event back then, and all of these different things are drawing on that. That's fine. But you can't say, oh, there is the Epic of Gilgamesh that talks about a flood, therefore it proves the Bible. Well, the Epic of Gilgamesh is a different story than the Bible one. So, how do you know that the Bible account, especially since it's the younger one, doesn't prove the Epic of Gilgamesh? How do you know that it doesn't prove the Atrahasis epic? You can't just say, oh, these are all flood stories, therefore it proves that mine is right. All that these stories prove is that several ancient cultures had a mythology that included a flood story. It doesn't prove anything further. Now, it may very well be that all of these trace back to a true story. Or it could just be that they all reflect a common original myth, or that these cultures just overlapped on these ideas. If you were going to write a superhero story today, there would be certain expectations. You'd probably have a family member die that changed the course of that character's life. You're probably going to have some sort of a conflict point with something that defines the hero's life moving on. Be that a bat with Batman, a spider with Spider-Man, or some form of radiation for so many other heroes. You're going to have these different beats that you are expected to hit in the story. As the same thing back then, the Bible wasn't written in a vacuum. The authors had certain things that they were expected to draw on. If you're going to talk about the origins of humanity, you're going to have a flood story in there. So it's both drawing on and also subverting those stories at the same time. We also have to acknowledge that many of these stories are of regional floods. So you can't just go, ah, flood mentioned all around the world, so therefore it was a worldwide flood. Well, many of those stories around the world are of regional floods. It's very possible that these areas all experienced regional floods throughout thousands of years of human history. That's very possible. But we also have to realize that not every single culture has these mythologies. Notably, Egypt and Japan don't have large flood myths, at least not of cataclysmic floods destroying land. And lastly, we have to realize that just because there are similarities doesn't mean that they are the same. There are also differences to these stories. If I were to tell you the story of a young teenage prodigy who lives with his aunt and uncle and has to go on a crazy adventure where he's trained by an experienced wizard and fights an evil person dressed in black. Well, what story am I talking about? Some of you thought of Star Wars. 
Some of you thought of Harry Potter. It's the exact same either way. Does that mean that Star Wars and Harry Potter are the exact same story? No, not at all. Now, there are certainly similarities, and plenty of people have talked about those, but you also have to acknowledge the differences. There are a lot of differences in those stories, and just because there are similarities in these flood mythologies doesn't mean that they are all telling the exact same story. There are so many differences as well, and you can't just pull out the similarities and ignore the differences. We have to consider both. In the last few minutes here, I just want to have a little caveat about divine violence and the reason for the flood. We touched on this toward the end of our last series, but I think it's worth bringing up again, because two common mistakes are often made when people come to this passage. They either try to compare the wickedness of the world back then to the way things are today, or they try to attribute current natural disasters to God's punishment. Both of those are problematic. See, the flood was a one-of-a-kind event in response to the world of its time. Nothing in the Bible indicates that all or even most natural disasters are divine punishment. If anything, the leaning of the Bible is that bad things sometimes happen just because we live in a sin-sick, post-Eden world. And that's not the fault of any modern person or people. You can't look at a natural disaster today and say, oh, God is obviously punishing those people for X wicked act because the flood happened in the Bible. No, 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 no. That is not okay. That is harmful. That is really, really bad theology. That is retributional theology, and that is not what the Bible teaches. God does not automatically punish every act with natural disaster. And good people get hurt in natural disasters. And so if you attribute a natural disaster to God's judgment, you are hurting, hurting people. You are causing more hurt for people who didn't necessarily do anything wrong, and you are obscuring the message of the gospel. The entire point, I think, of this flood story is to explain why God doesn't wipe people out in ways like this. We'll get to this when we get to chapter 9, but God tries to reset the world this way, and it doesn't work. Humanity does stupid stuff again. Wicked people show up again. Heck, even the Nephilim show up again. So the flood didn't work. It didn't accomplish its purposes. And so I think the purpose of it is to show that this is God saying, this is why I don't react this way. Because hitting control alternate delete every time humans do something stupid doesn't work. It's just going to make me do that every several years. And so if you then take this story and try to explain every natural disaster as God's judgment, I think you're very much missing the point of the story and causing a lot of damage in the meanwhile. And we also have to realize that the language of this story is hyperbolic. We mentioned in the previous series as we were in chapter 6 that it is not possible that every single motivation behind every single action by every single person was always corrupt. The Bible is very purposefully using this hyperbolic language to just say that it was a really bad time to live where humans were very violent against each other. Those of a more conservative persuasion, though, are going to often see the world as constantly getting worse. And so it's natural to try to draw correlations and say, well, the world was wicked back then. I see the world as wicked today. But the whole point of the flood is that God wasn't going to be a helicopter parent. He was going to let humanity make its own decisions, screw up at times, and find ways to still work with them in the meantime. So you can't draw a correlation between this Bible event and current natural disasters. And furthermore, the reasons for the flood are very complex. A lot of ancient myths attribute their flood accounts to the pettiness of the gods. For example, in the Atrahasis, and I think even in the Epic of Gilgamesh, the gods are said to wipe out humanity in a flood because humanity was being too loud. That's literally the only reason. So when the Bible draws on that pre-existent material, it tries to make it a little bit better and say, well, yes, this horrible thing happened, but it was actually because of how horrible humans were being to each other. See, the Bible attributes the flood to one explicit cause and one implicit cause. The explicit reason is humanity's violence against other humans, animals, and the land. The Bible frequently depicts God as being obligated to respond when the powerful oppress and abuse the powerless. 
And the way the story is written, it's almost like God is not so much punishing humans as much as actually just removing his protection and speeding up the natural consequences of humanity's actions. The implicit reason that I think is implied in the story is that the mixing of human and divine blood from the start of Genesis 6 was what was feeding all of this problem. Now, humans have had an issue even before then, because that's chapters 3 through 5 for you, but I think it was saying that it was speeding it up and making it worse. So much of the wickedness seems to be unhuman, and I think you can even explain, I don't want to say explain away, but you can make some of the Flood story not so harsh when you realize that a lot of the people that would have been wiped out, at least according to the biblical account, were not even fully human. They were part demon creatures. And yes, that's very weird. I will plug that Worldview of Genesis 6 episode that we had, because we get into that more. And I really don't want to try to oversimplify this, because the Flood is a very disturbing story. And it should be a disturbing story. But it's something where we have to look at it from both angles of, we don't want to imagine there's no difficulty to it. But we also have to realize that this is not just simply a vengeful God wiping out people because he was ticked off at them biblical story was written in a world where the gods could wipe out humans for simply being too loud. And the biblical authors apparently didn't like that. They said that, yes, this event happened, but it was actually because we were the problem. And God was still trying to save humanity through Noah. And so, again, it doesn't remove all of the problems, but it does help us to realize that the Bible was actually a very progressive book for its time. It was not beating the same drum that the other stories were. It was trying to tell a better, more uplifting tale. And I think that's important for us to remember today as well. Okay, we have covered a lot today, and I hope this has helped as we are getting into the study, because this is all stuff that is definitely going to come up more in chapter 7 through 11. And it helps when I don't have to spend too much time in each episode laying down all of this groundwork. I could just say, go back, listen to the Stuff You Don't Know You Don't Know episode. And if you get anything out of this, what I really want you to see is that it is possible to be a good Christian and take a differing side than other people that you know on this. The Bible is a very complex book. It is a very ancient book, and it was written to invite dialogue. And so if you come away from this thinking about the text more, talking about it more, then that's a win in God's book because you may not come to the exact same conclusion I do. You may not come to the exact same conclusion your pastor does or your spouse does or your friends do. That's okay because now you're talking about it more. Just remember to dialogue respectfully. This is not something that we need to be getting our stoning stones out. This is not a hill to die on. This is a place where we can talk about the Bible and learn from each other. Now, next week, we are going to cover chapter 7, and we are specifically going to highlight the flood as decreation, because there are all kinds of hyperlinks in that story back to chapters 1 and 2 of Genesis, where the flood is shown as a complete inversion of the creation account. And it's like creation is falling back in on itself into chaos. And we're also going to cover some more similarities to the Gilgamesh and Atrahasis epics. And we're going to address the theory of the time-traveling arc. Seriously, it's, it's going to be weird, but it's going to be awesome. So until then, stay curious and keep asking questions about the uncut and unfiltered Bible. You've been listening to the Bible Uncut and Unfiltered. We hope we provided a healing place to discuss the questions you can't ask and the context you won't learn in church. If you enjoyed the podcast, would you take a minute to share it with a friend? You could also rate and review on your podcast app. If you'd like to donate to keep our work going, you can go to our website, thebibleuncut.com, and click on the Support Us tab. While you're there, check out the recommended resources and blog where we post show notes and other articles. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next week.